we are going to talk about the rapture. And I'll get to whether and what I think about the rapture momentarily, but I want to make sure we have a good foundation laid for what the rapture is and what theological system it is nestled into. And so if you've not heard this word before, it's one that you'll want to learn, especially if you're a proponent of the rapture. Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. And specifically, uh, there are several different forms of dispensationalism. The most common is premillennial dispensationalism, though there are a number of different varieties. They're not all premillennial. There can be postmillennial. There's, there's mid-trib, post-trib. You, you know, those are all a type of dispensationalism. So I'm going to try and give you a little bit of history on dispensationalism, and I'm going to try and be careful about this because obviously it's a term that describes a large number of evangelical Christians in the United States, but not all of them agree with each other. So we don't want to, I want to be fair. But one of the places that I will point you is to a Christianity Today article um, that I think is immensely helpful. It was published a little while ago, but the title is Dispensational Premillennialism, The Dispensationalist Error by an author named Timothy Weber. Here is a good summary statement of what dispensationalism is. And the rapture is part of the dispensational theological system. So one thing that unites dispensationalists is summarized here pretty well in this article on Christianity Today. One of the key proponents of dispensational teaching um, this is in the 1800s, was a man named John Nelson Darby. And I think he's associated with the Brethren Movement in England. Here is the summary. I'm going to read it. There was nothing especially radical about dividing history into periods. That's what a dispensation is. A dispensation is a, is a period of time. And obviously the term is a pretty neutral generic term. There have, of course, been different dispensations, different time periods. And God has asked things of his people, specific things that are sometimes unique to that time period, sometimes even uh, momentary. So dispensationalists break up uh, history into several time periods, and there is huge debate over this. But here is uh, a basic breakdown. Um, the dispensation of innocency before the fall, conscience from the fall to the flood, human government, promise, Abraham to Moses, law, Moses to Christ, grace, the church aid, and, and kingdom, the millennium. That's a pretty generic one. There, there are oftentimes more. But what the article is saying here is there's nothing especially radical about dividing history into periods. What separated dispensationalists from everybody else was their novel, meaning their new or unique method of biblical interpretation. Everything in the dispensationalist system seemed to rest on the conviction that God had two completely different plans operating in history. One for an earthly people, Israel, and the other for a heavenly people, the church. That is, as far as, to, to my study and understanding, that is what makes a system dispensationalist. Now, there are lots of varieties of dispensationalists. Uh, lots of innovations, some very extreme, some maybe not so much. But this is at the foundation. There are two different histories in the short term for Israel and for the church. That seems to be essential. Again, this article is, uh, is from Christianity Today. You can read the whole thing. It would be 
very helpful for you for what we're going to talk about, Dispensational Premillennialism, the Dispensationalist Era by Timothy Weber. So this idea that there is a, a separate history for Israel and for the church is essential to dispensationalism. It essentially argues, and again, this is grossly oversimplified, but the, the basic idea of dispensationalism is that God offered a covenant of law to the people of Israel. That was a very much a this world set of promises. And that's true enough. You can see that in the law of Moses. Now, what happens is that Israel fails to keep that law and they reject Jesus as Messiah. And God opens a way for Gentiles, for non-Jewish people to come into relationship with the God of all creation, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he offers a covenant to the Gentiles that invites them into what would become the church. And they are offered a covenant of grace, whereas the Jewish people had been offered a covenant of law. And now there are two peoples. There are the Jewish people, still under the covenant of Moses, and there are Gentile followers of the same God who have put their faith in Jesus, who are living under the dispensation of grace in the era of the church. And so there are distinctives between what is expected of Gentiles and what is expected of Israel. And the Gentile church is not Israel. So that's the essence of dispensationalism. So when we talk about the rapture, the rapture answers the question, what is going to happen to the church? Because for a dispensationalist, at least generally so, and, and major seminary that is a dispensational seminary is like Dallas Theological Seminary. And there are quite a number, many of them Baptists, but maybe not all Baptists who believe in this. But anyway, for dispensationalists, the millennial reign of Christ that's described in the book of Revelation is for the people of Israel, for ethnic Israel. They rejected Jesus as Messiah the first time, but eventually faithful Israel will accept Jesus, and he will finally fulfill the promises made to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the millennial reign of Christ. But that is not for the Gentile church, according to dispensationalist thinking. So what is going to happen to the church? Well, the church, according to dispensational thinking, will be raptured. They will be taken away before the millennial reign of Christ. So this, that's kind of dispensationalism in a nutshell. And obviously there are nuances and we could get more complicated. The other thing I want uh, to talk about are the biblical passages that for folks who believe in dispensationalism, they believe that these passages support it. So I'll, uh, and there are probably more, I'm just kind of hitting the, the big ones. So we're going to start here. This is Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. It's a familiar passage. It's part of what... Um, academicians, scholars, and theologians call the Olivet Discourse because it is given by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew on the Mount of Olives. But this is what it says. But about that day and hour, no one knows the day that Jesus will return again, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake 
and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So that is the Olivet Discourse. Many of you have heard this quotation. Two will be working in the field. One will be taken. The other left. It was, it's a statement of Jesus that was given a certain dramatic interpretation through the Left Behind series. And, uh, you know, they, obviously the books were bestsellers when they were being produced. And then there was a movie series, too, that was less popular than the books. But still, the next passage that refers to the same thing uh, is in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 17. It's a parallel uh, teaching of Jesus. And uh, we find uh, the same kind of teaching here. This is Luke 17, 22. Then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go, do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Those who try to make their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. Then they asked him, where, Lord? He said to them, very strange response, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So that's the second passage. The other one, uh, there are two more that I'm going to cover that are often used to support this this idea of the rapture is in first Thessalonians chapter four, first Corinthians chapter four, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about those who have died. These are faithful believers who have perished so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died for this. We declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And you could go on reading First Thessalonians. I mean, it's a very much a teaser at the beginning of chapter five. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need to have anything written to you for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And you can go on with that reading. The final passage that is often used to support the rapture, at least in my experience, is this passage from the book of Revelation. This is Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. Now at this point, Jesus is opening the seven seals of this scroll that no one could open, and Jesus is able to open. And after he opens the sixth seal, 144,000 from Israel are, are marked by the Lord, 
And then there is this passage, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. That, at least for maybe, maybe not all rapture people, dispensationalists, believe this, but I have certainly heard it preached that this is the Gentile church, this great robed choir. And there's evidence here that they have been taken up into heaven and delivered from the earth before the seventh seal is broken, which then precipitates in the seven trumpets, and then after that in the seven bowls of God's wrath. Uh, those are events classically in dispensationalism associated with the great tribulation, and not just dispensationalists for that part, but uh, just to give you a sense. So this is another passage that's sometimes called to, to say, see, the, 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 the church has been also, not only was ethnic Israel sealed, 144,000, but the church now appears in the heavens as a great, a great white-robed choir. And therefore, we see the evidence of the rapture here in the book of Revelation. So that is the best I can do to summarize the idea of the rapture and where it fits for those who are dispensationalists. Now, it will not be surprising to any who have sat under the ministry that I've been engaging in over the last, well, when did I start? Um, 2001. No, the end of, no, the end of 2000 was my first full-time ministry. So now it's been 20 years. For those who have sat under the ministry that I've been engaged in over those years, it may not be a surprise to you for me to say I am not a dispensationalist. I don't believe that there are two different future histories on this side of the new heavens and the new earth for Israel and for the church. I've preached on numbers of occasions that Gentile believers are grafted into the olive tree of Israel and that together we are Israel, both ethnic Israel and Gentiles grafted in are both grafted into the olive tree of Israel and we are Israel together. I don't see distinct future in the scriptures for ethnic Israel and the church. I see whatever future God has promised to be united. And so if, if the millennial reign of Jesus is meant to be taken literally, and I do think it is, uh, though I'm not sure of that, but that's what I believe, I believe it will be for both Gentiles and Jews together who have put faith in Jesus. I think it will be true Israel, which is, I think, Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 through 11. So I don't believe in two different futures. And for that reason, I am not a dispensationalist. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that Jesus spoke is intended for the church. It's intended for all Israel, not simply for ethnic Israel, the church being given a different covenant, one of grace. I don't, I don't believe those things. So therefore, I'm not a dispensationalist. And not being a dispensationalist, I am not left with a question as to what needs to be done with the Gentile church once Jesus is reigning on earth in the millennial reign of Christ, because I believe we are altogether Israel. And for that reason, I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe it's biblical. Now, I'm perfectly happy to be taken away to avoid some suffering. And if the Lord wishes to do that, he won't get any complaints from me. But I don't see that as a biblical teaching, primarily because I'm not a dispensationalist. To me, it messes with the entire way that I read the scriptures. So I, I do want to get, that's probably a bombshell for some, because we often have been fed rapture theology as 
disconnected from its dispensationalist context and often just given to us as kind of a way out of uh, the very difficult times that will come on the people of the earth at the end. So I'm going to try and explain to you what I do believe about the relationship between ethnic Israel and Gentile believers who are grafted into that olive tree and how I see that working. I'm going to do that. I do believe God works in different ways at different times. That's not a problem for me. I do believe in dispensations, but I don't believe in dispensationalism. And I'm going to explain what I do believe in and encourage you to do some research yourself, because of course there are plenty of Christians that I respect who find themselves to be dispensationalists. So I've been heavily influenced by the Hebraic roots of the Christian faith. And I'm going to try and give you some resources where you can uh, look into that. So this is one of the formational resources for me in the way that I think about the relationship between Gentile Christians and Jewish, ethnically Jewish followers of Jesus. It's a book, Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith. It's by a man named Marvin Wilson. And Marvin Wilson was a professor of mine at Gordon College in my undergraduate and I had the great privilege of taking uh, modern Jewish culture with him. And so I'm going to introduce you to a term. If you're not familiar with this, there is a perspective on how to read Paul that's called the new perspective on Paul. Now, contemporary um, people who associate with that movement are people like N.T. Wright or E.P. Sanders, and then there are others. Uh, also, who would be considered new perspective on Paul. That scares a lot of people, the language of new perspective on Paul. And I will tell you how this gets back to the dispensationalist question and the rapture and all of that. But the new perspective on, on Paul is not actually new. I would say it's the oldest perspective on Paul, myself. It was kind of trying to separate from Martin Luther's beliefs about Paul. Now, I think Luther's great. But one thing Luther assumed was that when Paul said the word law, he meant laws in general, rules. And so for Luther, when he reads Paul saying that God has set us free from law, Luther saw him saying that God had set us free from all the rules and regulations that stand against us, codes of contact, uh, conduct in any form. And Luther, some of you have probably read his biography, he was a man who had a very guilty conscience and felt he could never live up to the high standards of God and felt completely liberated when he realized that there were no standards, that salvation was by faith, and which he interpreted as belief. And so for Luther, that began to color the way he read Paul constantly. And so when Paul is arguing about law and gospel, Luther always heard him arguing about legalism and grace. Now, the new perspective on Paul, which started, well, maybe it has roots before this. The first book I'm aware of was written in the 60s or 70s, which was based on a series of lectures by a man named Christer Stendhal. And I'll get to his resource later. But Marvin Wilson is very much a new perspective on Paul. And this is what the new perspective is, if you've been patient enough to wait for it. The new perspective on Paul is that Paul was a Jewish man writing out of a, a Jewish worldview, a Hebraic worldview. And he was trying primarily in the books of Romans and Galatians, which the new perspective on Paul kind of zoned in on. He was writing 
to help the new burgeoning Christian community better understand the relationship between ethnic Israel and new Gentile believers who are coming into the church. And so that's when he talks about law, he's talking about the law of Moses, especially some particular permutations of the law of Moses that distinguish Jews from Gentile, like kosher law, like circumcision and things like that. He's not talking about rules in general. He's talking about a very specific covenant, the covenant of Mount Sinai. And the way in which Israel had violated that covenant and the ways in which Jesus was liberating them from the stipulations of that covenant that they did not keep. And then the question of how Gentiles coming in affect what the ethics and morality of Christianity are going to be now. Are they still going to be directed by the law of Moses? Are they directed by something else? Are Gentiles held to the same standards as Jewish people? Should Jewish people continue living according to the law of Moses, but now just add on Jesus? These are the issues that Paul was dealing with. Recognizing that when reading Paul is the new perspective on Paul. So you can see, I don't know why it's called new. I mean, that's about the oldest perspective there is. It was a recapturing of the context. And it grew out of what was called the biblical theology movement, where interpreters of the Bible became interested again in the customs, culture, and context of the writers of the books of the scriptures. And Marvin Wilson, who I, the, our father Abraham, is, is very much a believer in the new perspective on Paul. Now, I'm not, people like N.T. Wright, E.P. Sanders, and some of the more uh, recent writers have pushed the new perspective on Paul to some places that I'm not real comfortable with. But the essential observation that Paul was a Jewish man writing in a Jewish context, dealing with the, the reality of Gentiles coming into the Christian faith and trying to help the early church understand theologically what was happening in the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles in the church and what it would look like to go forward and how these two groups related and what it means now to be an integrated Israel that incorporates believing Gentiles. Um, a very different world than the one Paul was raising, that that is the essential conversation Paul is having in books like Romans and Galatians. You can even see it, I think, in Ephesians and Colossians. That, that I believe, and so does Wilson. And so for that reason, um, I'm resistant to any theological system that tries to put a wedge between the church and Israel. And there are lots of different ways to do that. Dispensationalism is only one. I do believe in two covenants. I'm not a covenantal gnomist. I don't believe that the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Jesus are the same covenant. I don't believe that. I do believe in the language of a new covenant, but I do believe that they are underlie by the same principles. And I think much of what's revealed in the law of Moses is still implied in the new covenant of Jesus. So in any case, we're not going to get into that. I promised I would only answer the question being asked. And I'm answering the question of the rapture. And trying to explain to you why I see no need for that doctrine. So anyway, I want you to see a little bit of what Marvin Wilson says about the relationship between Gentile Christians and ethnically Jewish Christians in this, I think it's proper to call it Israel. Israel is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus and the generosity of God. But here's a passage from Marvin Wilson's book. If one accepts the thesis that Paul converted from Judaism to Christianity, then Paul becomes one who stands primarily in opposition to the law. As we previously pointed out, however, Paul did not view Christianity as a religion distinct from Judaism. Rather, in W.D. Davies' words, Paul understood Christianity as a form of his ancestral religion or as a further stage of its development, however new. 
Paul's theology was not essentially new, for he had integrated and reinterpreted, not ignored, the rich traditions, the Old Testament, apocalyptic, pharisaic of his people in light of Christ. In the same vein, Pincus Lapid states, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but you'll forgive me, states forcefully, throughout his, Paul's lifetime, his people remained Israel. His Bible was the Tanakh, which is our Old Testament. His God was the God of his fathers. His Messiah was a Jew, and from Jews alone emerged his mother church. Despite all of his Christocentricity, the Israelites remained his beloved brethren and blood relatives even after Easter. About Paul's identity, Lapid concludes that he is neither an anti-Semite nor an anti-Judaist. He's not even an apostate, much less an antinomian, one who's against law. Expressions that would have horrified him. In his own way, he remained a believing Jew and missionary. But above all else, he is a hero of the faith, not of the lukewarm, rational pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, of the philosophers, but of the incandescent Hebraic emuna, which is Wilson's argument for the word, the Hebrew word that underlies the idea of faith, which is emuna is faithfulness or steadfastness. And, and you could go on. I would love for you to read um, all of our father Abraham. What he is arguing there is essentially, that's a good summary of what the new perspective on Paul was when it began. Uh, for another book, this was actually the very first book that I read on the new perspective on Paul, and it was forma formational for me, and I still consider it a really pure form of, of it. Paul Among Jews and Gentiles and Other Essays by Christer Stendhal. And this, again, will begin to illuminate a little bit of what we just read in Marvin Wilson about understanding Paul as a Jewish man who did not see the church as replacing Israel or the church as kind of a, a whole separate uh, entity with their own covenant distinct from the covenant made with Israel and two different futures. The New Perspective rejects that, and uh, Stendhal began to address that issue in this wonderful book. It's very short, and I don't think too, too hard to read, though probably a good idea to read it with somebody else. And then you could move into Our Father Abraham with Marvin Wilson, and you would get a pretty good sense of the new perspective on Paul. So I'm just kind of laying a foundation to say that even though in popular Christian culture in the United States, it might seem like everybody's a dispensationalist and the rapture is just a given, that is far from the truth. It's a very uh, specific segment of Christianity that believes in that. And I'm not a dispensationalist. So your question might be, how do you answer all of those passages that seem to clearly indicate that the church is going to be taken away prior to the end? And I'll, my, my perspective is those passages do not teach that. That once you believe that, you could see it there, but I don't think they essentially teach that. That's my, my perspective. But let's go and look back at the passages and I'll tell you what I see happening there. So here we go. So this is back to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is describing uh, the coming of the Son of Man, which, interestingly enough, at this context, the disciples might not have understood that Jesus was going to die, rise, ascend into the heavens, and then return. As far as they know at this point in the gospel, he is just going to leave and then come back, which is a very unusual he, he's told them he's going to die, but it's clear in the gospel tradition they don't really understand that until it happens. So. For as in the days, so when Jesus returns again, which the disciples would have understood different, differently probably when they heard this than they would after he rose from the dead and ascended into the heavens, but that's how we're reading it. So that's how we understand it. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. So for me, and, and the Luke passage, which is the next one here in Luke 17, is virtually the same context. So I'm going to talk about both of these sort of together. So Jesus' point is that the coming of the Son of Man will be sudden, just as it was the coming of the flood. In the days of Noah, people had no idea that the world was about to be destroyed. They were just going on their happy lives. The only ones who knew were Noah. And then he says, as in the days of Noah, two were working in the field, one was taken, the other is left. Well, in the days of Noah, who was taken and who was left? In the days of Noah, the ones who were left were the righteous, right? Noah and his family, they were left on the earth. It was the wicked who were taken. It seems to me the most natural reading of that passage is Jesus saying that when he comes, some will, will die, will not survive his coming. That the events that precede his coming will include a lot of destruction. Two will be working in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left just like happened in the days of Noah. It's not about rapture as far as I can tell. It's about judgment. And I think that corresponds very well with the book of Revelation and the judgments that are going to come on the people of the earth through the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. So the indication here is that just like in the days of Noah, the coming of Jesus will be a day of judgment. And just like in Jesus, it may be impossible for the average person to tell who is with God and who is not, who judgment will fall on and who it won't. I think that's the natural way to read the Olivet Discourse. And one of the things I want to say, I believe the scriptures clearly teach that there are only two comings of Jesus. But it seems to me rapture theology has to posit that there are three. So Jesus comes the first time, we're all agreed on that. For those who believe in the rapture, he has to return, kind of come out of the heavens and float down, collect the faithful Gentiles, the church, and then go back up, and then come back down a third time to be the king of the millennial reign for the people of Israel and be declared as their Messiah. I don't think the Bible speaks of three coming. I think it's only two, and you can see that here in this passage too. So for me, I'm left with only two comings of Jesus, and I've got to make things work based on that logic. At least that's the way that, that I think. So I think this passage in Matthew and in Luke, the Olivet Discourse and, and its companion passage in Luke, is about judgment. And it's a warning that preceding the coming of the Son of Man, devastating things will happen, just like happened in the, in the days of, of Noah. And it will be impossible to predict who will survive it. One will be working in the field, one taking the other left. It's got to be somewhat metaphorical because that's not literally what happened in the days of Noah, even though that's what Jesus is referring to. I think it's a picture of judgment. The other passage is in 1 Thessalonians. So this passage that is trying to encourage the Thessalonians with respect to people who've died, because many of them seem to have been under the impression that they would all be alive to see Jesus come. 
and that didn't happen. Jesus has not yet returned, and many faithful believers had died by this time, let alone all the saints in the First Testament and the apostles themselves. So if, if people were going to see him come with their own eyes and they have now died, then does that mean that the teaching of the gospel was false? And Paul's response is, not at all, because when Jesus does return, the righteous dead will be raised, and they will see him come with their own eyes. So that's part of what, G, of what Paul is trying to encourage them with. And then he gives this picture. For since we believe, verse 14 here, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you. So he's bringing with them him those who have died, but it's a very unique way that it's happening. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another in, with these words. So it is natural, and I'm not saying it's not natural, especially once you've been introduced to the idea of the rapture. Natural to think that what's essentially happening is that Jesus is coming out of the heavens, the dead in Christ are being raised. Now remember, for dispensationals who believe in the rapture, this is only the Gentile believers that this is happening for. And they are being raised. And then those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes are caught up with them in the air. And then Jesus takes us into the heavens. Like that's the assumption. So Jesus kind of comes down but doesn't touch foot on the ground. He takes everybody with him. And then he's going to come back again later um, to, to reign in the millennium with the Jewish people. That's how people read it. There's no reason to read it that way. Uh, probably one of the people that I deeply respect who has explained this really well is uh, Scott Daniels, who is the lead pastor, the lead minister of um, Nampa College Church in Nampa, Idaho. And uh, boy, it was a long time ago, he published an article on this, but he explained this pretty well, but it's not unique to him. This is, uh, for those of us who don't believe in dispensationalism, this is a pretty traditional way of reading this passage. And I like, I, I'm pretty sure it's the way that the church read it up until the time of John Nelson Darby anyway. And this is that when a king is coming to take over a kingdom, the people who are welcoming that king leave their city to welcome him. And so this would happen throughout the ancient world. I think what's being described here is when Jesus comes, the second coming, there's only a second coming, I don't think a third and a fourth, but when he comes the second time, what it's saying is that the dead in Christ, and I believe this is both Jewish and Gentile, not a dispensationalist, I think all the faithful, I think Abraham, David, um, Noah, all of those will be caught up along with those who have believed in the message of Jesus, will be resurrected from the dead. That's how I read it anyway. And they will meet Jesus in the air as he is descending to the earth. They will welcome him like people who come out of a city to welcome the conquering king. And those of us who are still alive, if we're fortunate to be part of that generation, will be caught up in the air. And we will all welcome Jesus to the earth. But I believe what happens next is what the First Testament prophets declare would happen when the Messiah comes. He will set foot on the earth, we will accompany him, and he will be declared king. And then the bits of Revelation where he conquers and whatnot and the millennium is set up and all that, I think follows the coming of Jesus and our welcoming of him. And the way that I read uh, the book of Revelation is that the righteous 
dead and those who are righteous when he comes will all be part of the millennial reign, Jew and Gentile alike, uh, grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And the wicked who are alive when he comes will also be alive and Satan will be bound. And that's how I, I read it, if it's meant to be taken literally, and I don't see any good reason not to. That's what I expect to happen. So this passage is not about Jesus taking people away, but about us welcoming him to the earth. I believe that very strongly. And then we will be with the Lord forever because we will be with him while he reigns on earth. And we will be with him when the new heavens and the new earth come. From that point on, we will not be separated from Jesus. I think that is what Thessalonians is teaching. And then if we move into this passage in the book of Revelation, I don't want to deal really too extensively with that, but this white-robed group from all nations and languages, I expect at this point in the book of Revelation, that's not a raptured group of Gentile believers in Jesus, but that is, though these are Gentiles, they're from every nation, I think these are those who have died, those who have died in the faith, and they are here as the plagues are starting to be poured out, singing praises to God. This would be prior to their resurrection bodily resurrection, I think. You'll notice that it's very difficult to fit the rapture in Revelation, and I would say that's because it's a foreign concept. There's no narrated um, rapture in the book of Revelation. I don't think it was an anticipation of the New Testament authors that a Gentile church would have some separate future from the Jewish believers. I think true Israel, our, our ethnic Israelites, uh, who have believed in Jesus, along with Gentile believers who have been grafted into that olive tree. And I don't see those two as separate. I don't see the new covenant that Paul describes as a, a unique covenant given just to Gentile believers that excludes Jewish believers who are meant to live under the law of Moses until Jesus returns. I don't believe that. I think that pushes completely against Paul's teachings in the book of Galatians. Jesus set the Jewish people free from the covenant of Moses and the curses that came on them because of their failure to keep it, just as much as he sent Gentiles free from the curse that fell on all of us through the events of the Garden of Eden. So for me, to summarize, the reason I don't believe the rapture to be biblical is because I don't believe the distinct futures for Israel and the church to be biblical. That's just simply not what I believe. I'm not a dispensationalist. And to me, and I've never been persuaded otherwise, to believe in the rapture, you must believe in dispensationalism. So could I imagine rapture theology taking on a new form in a different context? Sure, I could imagine that. I could imagine somebody refusing to believe that Israel and Gentiles, ethnic Israel and Gentile believers are separate, that they're one, and that God is simply going to remove Christians from the earth so they don't have to endure all the suffering that comes on the wicked at the end. That would be probably the popular view of the rapture. But that really doesn't work biblically, as far as I can tell. Um, it works only with the dispensationalist system, in which the idea is that there is a separate future for Gentiles, because even dispensationalists agree that ethnic Israel has to be here through the tribulation, because otherwise revelation makes no sense. And so you really can't, I can't imagine a way in which the Gentile church could be raptured unless you disconnect them from ethnic believing Israel. And I simply don't believe you can.
in that way, I'm a new perspective on Paul person.